Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the words of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. We're starting in on a new series here for the next two months. We're looking at our church as an extended family. So it's really two months looking at relationships. And as, as we start to get our heads oriented this direction, my questions are this. I want you to think about family. Think about your family right now, the family you grew up in, family reunions. Think also about friends, friendships close friends that you have, the friends that you run with at school, in your community now, old friends that you love to see, and think in general about the idea of community. Do you live and exist in the relational circles that you want to exist in? What would your ideal be? What gets in the way? What is your vision of community and healthy relationships if you could achieve it? I suppose for some of us, there's a picture going back maybe a century ago, 
to a more agrarian society. If any of you have ever read Wendell Berry, he's great with this sort of thing. He has a series of short stories called That Distant Land and accompanying novels where he writes about Port William, Kentucky at the turn of the last century and the, centru- and the decades following. He writes about these families, uh, about a guy named Ptolemy Proudfoot and his wife, Miss Minnie, about the Hardy family and the Cotmans and the Coulters and all these families that lived in these valleys and ridges of an agrarian society a century ago in this small town, Kentucky. And the picture is so idealistic as I read these stories at night. It's a picture of work being meaningful and satisfying, of relationships, of interdependence, of knowing people and being known by them because for decades and generations, you and your families have lived near each other. And in some ways, that is certainly an ideal of what relationships should look like. But perhaps for some of you, it's not the agrarian society. You don't even need to go back 100 years ago. You need to go back to this. Which is Ward and June, Wally and Jerry Mathers as the beaver. A time... 50 years ago when roles were set and everyone knew where they fit in. A kitchen table that was always, always there and ready in the morning and after school and in the evening. A time when problems at their worst involved an OG and the pace of life seemed doable. And some of us idealize the 40s and the 50s, but the reality is that it wasn't ideal for everyone. I'm sure it was ideal if you looked like Ward and June and Wally and the Beaver. But if you were a racial minority or a single mom or divorced, if you were struggling in life, if you were in a lower class, you maybe didn't have access to the sort of ideal life that Wally and the Beaver did growing up. So maybe, maybe it's not going backwards, and I don't think it is. But the question is, is where we are right now, is that the ideal for developing relationships, for cultivating community? You know, we live in the most transient time, the most transient culture ever in history. And in many ways, that's not altogether an evil because part of being upwardly mobile is the fact that you can start low and work your way up. That you can speak English improperly or have dark skin and become the president of the United States. That is amazing. But there's also inherent challenges in a transient culture where you don't live near family. You don't grow up in the same little village in agrarian Kentucky. It means that we don't stay in one place long enough to really get to know other people. Very few of us live near extended family in a way that centuries ago they did. And as a result of the pace of life, we really don't have time to keep up relationships. And yet, deep down in, we desire relationships. We're made to desire them. Now, one of the things I want to ask as we think through relationships is, what does our life look like and which parts of it need to be challenged and maybe even overturned? And what desires do we have? And which of those are actually right? Because some of the desires that I see in us are, when we talk about relationships, are a desire for romance and love. And we seem to confuse the two and assume we have to have romance in order to be loved in our culture. We also have a desire to be cared for and to be needed 
to have people who want us in their lives and to be available to people in their lives. And deep down in, we have a desire to be known, for people to actually know us and still accept us. And so as we're thinking about this over the next couple months, I want us to be asking questions like, are our desires actually right desires? Is there more that we could be desiring? Does our lifestyle contradict the desires of our heart? And what does God have to say about this? Could it be better? And so, we're calling this series Extended Family. And it goes back to our vision and values. Our vision and values go like this. We are a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. And that idea of being an extended family was one that was um, in the heads of a number of us who were building the, the, the founding uh, and starting Christ Church Vienna a few years ago, we talked about the church as an extended family. And that goes back to my own thinking, which is this. I, I'd been a, on staff with a number of churches, and here's what I found. A church does not function like a business. It is not nearly as efficient. It tends to be messy and challenging. It's more than a business... It's also not just an association that you voluntarily join up with, like a country club or the Elks Lodge. There's something else that ties people together. And the closest thing that I could come up with in my head was that picture of a family reunion or Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner when everyone is gathered in your extended family. And what's that like? That's like having, I remember growing up with this, having cousins, an older cousin who was picking on me, um, one family member who would tell off-color jokes very inappropriately, a grandmother who was always trying to shove that extra piece of pie in my face, lovingly so. It's at times challenging to be with extended family. It's at times messy to be with them. Sometimes if you really looked at it, you would realize you would not be friends with these people except that you're related to them. And deep down in, you really do love and care about them. Because you're family. That's what the church is meant to be. Messy. People that we maybe wouldn't relate to, except there's something that ties us together. Something deeper than just common interest in football or symphonies or having kids in the same school. And family is the New Testament language for the church. Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? Whoever follows me. And Paul carries that on with the most common language used, a metaphor for the church being the family. And it's why he says, brothers and sisters, we ought to. And he talks about the family as the children whose head is God. And this idea of extended family is also why we try to do some things pretty intentionally here at Christ Church Vienna. We try to have people wear name tags, not because these are super cool, but because in this family, no one knows everyone else in the room. And it's a great way to help break that ice so that maybe you should know every aunt and uncle that you have in this place, but you really don't. Come on, let's be honest. And this makes it easier. It's why when we pass the peace, which in some more traditional churches, you simply say, peace be with you and also with you. And we usually encourage and use that time, which is, an, which is a traditional time to, to just greet one another, to actually greet one another. 
meet somebody near you. It's why we pay to have Cafe Amore coffee and Dunkin' Donuts, and actually starting today, uh, Great Harvest Bread, so that you will stay after and meet one another when you have the time to do so on a given day. Because we want to cultivate relationships. And that's also a challenge to us on the question of where do you sit? So over the couple of months that are upcoming, if you look at this, this picture on the left here, This picture on the left is sort of what Sunday morning looks like for us. And here's the reality. Some of you sit in the same place every Sunday. I know it. I know where you sit. And for some of you, you have to do that because you sit in a certain place because you're physically unable to sit in others. You aesthetically prefer to sit in a particular place or you're just inflexible. Others of you, others of you are actually capable of moving. And I'm going to encourage you over the next two months to move at least one Sunday each month. Sit in a different location. What you will find is there are people who go to this church you didn't even know went to this church. You might meet cousins, brothers, sisters that you didn't even know you had. So if you're going to stay in the same place, reach out and get to know the people who are near you. And if you're bold enough, brave enough over the next couple of weeks, sit further forward cross sides. Just, just once. If your personality is totally thrown by doing that, stay where you are. I do not want anyone freaking out. Know yourself, but if you're capable, that movement, that movement opens your eyes. You say, I didn't know this family went here. I've never seen those kids in this church. But this is where we cultivate that first level of family. But I want you to see as well that our our hope is that this is not the only place. The next circle is small groups. It's why in the fall and in the spring we do small groups so that you can be building relationships at a deeper level. And the reality is something like this. You might actually have, if you were to consider yourself, say, the blue circle, you might have two best friends in this church that you have never met. People that you were meant to do life with for the next 20 years. But if you stay in the same place, you might never meet them. And if you never have entered a small group, you might never meet them. And ultimately, the last group of becoming close, best brothers and sisters and friends with each other, we can't do that. You have to do that yourself. you got to pick your own friends. But these other spaces of utilizing Sunday morning and small groups are an opportunity to develop and deepen and widen relationships. And the reality is this. As much as coming to faith in Jesus Christ is something you personally have to do, there's nothing about faith in Jesus Christ that is meant for you to do alone. We are called into family. And so over the next two months, we're going to talk about cultivating community. And not just in the church, but some of these things apply to all of our relationships. Your relationships with your family, in your neighborhood, at your school, on your street. Some of what has influenced my own thinking in this is a book that is, um, I've read three or four times, which is provocatively called Sex and the I World. The I World has nothing to do with the company Apple and has everything to do with our individualism. Dale Keene was the professor who wrote this and pastor. And in writing it, he tries to understand why we do what we do relationally in the culture that we're in now. And he starts off by critiquing our individualistic culture. These things that we do as Americans that we don't even realize we do. 
And he suggests in this book that we have a new, a need for a new approach to relationships. That we really do need to redefine what it means to be intimate with one another and what it means to be loved. And what's interesting is in part of his critique, which we'll bring up over the next few weeks here, is he critiques how the church has so emphasized marriage and the nuclear family that they have thrown out two other very important aspects of relationship, friends and three-generation families. We have undervalued friends in the church. And the reality is that that is meant to be a central core part of how we live and exist. And we've also undervalued the three-generation family, meaning having people younger than you and older than you around you. A generation above, a generation below, or depending on your age, two generations above or two generations below. But finding people outside of the, the station of life that we are in. That we are called to cultivate wider and deeper community. And ultimately, the church is uniquely poised to create that sort of relational spheres that we're made to exist in. And so, in this series on extended family, I want us to actually think aloud together about relationships. We're going to spend time challenging our cultural assumptions and the way that we go about life and do relationships, and I'm hoping that we will re-envision and be reinvigorated towards relationships, and maybe... Months, maybe years down the line, it will look different here at Christ Church Vienna. That what is happening in here and in these circles is something that people who are not here will want to be a part of. And we're going to do that out of 1 Corinthians. And why 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians is a great backdrop to look at relationships because they were relationally a complete mess. In verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul provides the thesis statement for the entire letter. He says, I appeal to you brothers, notice he calls them brothers, family language, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the problem in Corinth was they lacked unity. There were divisions among them. And what's really interesting is nearly every New Testament letter, when Paul writes it, is dealing with theological challenges, theological crisis. In Corinth, it wasn't so much that they were theologically way off, it's that they were socially way off. They had factions. The rich were not integrating the poor. There was people who had spiritual charismatic gifts who were looking down on those who didn't. People who thought they were spiritually mature looking down on those who were not. It was relational challenges that they were dealing with. And so in many ways, we're going to use Corinthians, much like uh, the gemologist would use the black velvet. If you're going to buy a diamond and the gemologist is going to lay out the diamonds, he's going to put it on black velvet because the contrast is so great that you can see all the beauty and imperfections in the diamond. If it wasn't for the black velvet, I would have never seen the diamond that I bought Sarah. And I'm not sure how anyone sees it anyhow when it's not on the black velvet. But there it was, the black velvet laid out. I could actually see, oh, there it is. Yes, I'll take that one. And so we're going to use the black velvet, the contrast of the dysfunction in Corinth, to try and lay out what God is calling us to. And ultimately, what we're looking for is the wisdom of God. 
the ways of God. As we navigate this world and the life in which we live, how do we cultivate relationships? It's not easy. And as Paul begins his argument to the Corinthians, the first thing he talks about, he builds a foundation that is all about wisdom. He says, you want to be wise, let's talk about wisdom. We see that in, uh, in verse 20 and 22. Paul challenges the Corinthians. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He goes on to say, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul is using their language. The Corinthians wanted wisdom. They wanted to be wise, philosophically wise, religiously wise. And he says, you guys say you want to be wise. But then what does he do? He goes right to the gospel because he knows that ultimately the gospel challenges the wisdom of men. That whatever it is in their culture they upheld didn't actually find its reality in the gospel. And they were Christians. And so he goes on to say in verses uh, 22, 23 and 24, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's interesting, he's going to to try and talk to them about how to be loving with one another, how to be unified, but where does he go? He goes directly to the cross. Why would he go to the cross? There's two reasons. One is that the cross always challenges our cultural assumptions. You don't believe in a crucified Messiah if you are a Greek. You don't believe that God became a man if you were a Jew. At every turn, the gospel and the basic Christian message of the cross challenges our natural cultural assumptions. And ultimately, Paul also knows this. If we're going to have positive, deep relationships, we need the cross. See, the first thing the cross does is it tells us that we are reconciled to God. Every ache and desire for relationship that we have inside of us Everything inside of us that turns to other people to be known and loved and accepted and affirmed is ultimately a desire for God. And our relationship with God is broken and it's only reconciled through Jesus Christ crucified and our faith in him. So he goes to the cross because he says, remember, until you are reconciled to God, you cannot know what it is to be reconciled to one another because you're gonna turn to other people to give you what only God can give you. But once you are reconciled to God, you can secondly find relational depth because you're not going to go to other people for love and acceptance because you've had it from God first. You're going to be able to love them humbly, sacrificially, generously. The gospel causes us to be incredibly humble because we realize that none of us can get there on our own. All of us are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. 
So there's no more boasting. There's no more excluding. It opens up the possibility of going really deep with people because we're not putting up walls and defenses and guards against people. And thirdly, the gospel, it, it reconciles us to God, it enables deep relationships, it also binds us together. You know, there's no reason why you all should be in the same room. If we went around and did one of those like e-harmony type things about whether you should be in the same room sitting near each other, the likelihood is that a dozen of you should be in the same space or you four or five should be near each other, but there's no way all of us should be in the same room. Except Jesus Christ. He connects old with young. Athletes with musicians, with book lovers, with introverts, with extroverts. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ. This is one of those unique places at the foot of the cross where all of us are able to be brought together, connected as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul goes to the gospel to lay the foundation for the type of relationships he's going to call them to. And Paul also goes to the gospel because he wants them to see that the ways of God may not be their ways. See, they already bought into the gospel. They were already Christians, but in their lifestyle, they weren't living it out. And, and basically, they kind of had this faith in Jesus Christ crucified. They got that, but there was a disconnect between how they, how they, they believed in Jesus and how they lived. So it was like they had, you know, this idea of I'll buy into the wisdom of God to be saved, but not for how I use my money or my body or my relationships. And at every turn, the truth and wisdom of God almost always challenges our cultural assumptions. And it ends up being, at times, counterintuitive. Paul underscores this by talking about the weakness that God uses. In verse 27 and following, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So you have to understand that in Corinth, in that day and age, Corinth was a cultural hub. It was really the most important city in Greece at the time. It was not the political capital, but it was the capital of wealth and economy, of entertainment. It was a success-oriented culture. You were looking for public honor and recognition. You were looking for fame. It was therefore a lot like New York or L.A. Very cosmopolitan, very forward-thinking, a place where you could start off poor and become rich if you worked hard enough and achieved greatness enough and were recognized by enough people. Status was something people were after. You wanted to achieve in life. You wanted recognition. You were allowed to self-promote. But the gospel says God chose the weak and the lowly and the despised. You see, Paul is trying to shake their cultural assumptions, the values that they had bought into. Because Paul himself was humble and self-debasing. He admits his weakness. You know, even a very small thing like this, 
Paul was a tent maker and actually probably made his trade in Corinth while he was a preacher there by making tents. In that Corinthian culture, they would have looked down on that. Because if you were truly a philosopher, truly a scribe, truly a teacher, you would have had rich people sponsoring you, paying for you, thus elevating your status in the community. Paul intentionally would not receive that because he didn't want them to believe in his message on the basis of his status, but on the basis of the reality and truth of the gospel message. The gospel was pushing against their cultural assumptions. And it's true with every culture that has ever existed. Every culture has had these basic mindsets that make it incredibly hard for us to accept the gospel and the wisdom of God. God became man? Who can believe that? Jesus dies but rises again? That's ridiculous. Jesus Christ is the only way? How can you say that? Every culture is challenged by the ways and wisdom of God. And here's what I want us to think about, and this is really just an introduction to this whole series is think about our cultural assumptions, the things that are our natural biases, our blinders, these things we do without even thinking. Let me give you an example. What we do, how we view money, is a cultural bias. And it's something that's built into each of us individually. One of the questions I always ask couples early on in premarital counseling is, how much money will it be okay for you to spend without telling your spouse? Hear that again. So pre-marriage, I'm getting these two people together. I say, okay, how much money would be the right amount? Once you spend it, you've got to tell your spouse because you're spending X number of dollars. And I say, write it down on a piece of paper. And one spouse-to-be will write down $500. Anything less than that, you don't need to tell them. The other will write $5. There's assumptions behind that about what you do with money, how you value it how you share that. What we do with money is a bias that we don't even realize we're doing. Another one is the cultural assumption that my body is mine. I can do with it what I want as long as I'm not harming others with it. Or how about this cultural assumption? If I were to ask, what form of political government does God favor? As Americans, it's obviously democracy, right? But notice this, in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, the government was a tyrannical, pagan, Roman emperor who was completely unjust in many ways. There was no elections going on. It was not a common, you know, of the people, for the people type government. And yet there's very little direct reference or trying to challenge that political establishment. I prefer democracy, but it's an assumption that that is the way of God. At every turn, I want us to be thinking, what is the wisdom and way of God, and what do I just do because I think it's right? Because when it comes down to it, we want to live under the wisdom and ways of God and not our own. And so one last one is this. Think about the way that we deal with friends and time. Friends and time. 
When I was in college, I had a few spare credits, so I took Swahili, as everyone does. And in my Swahili class, there was a professor from Tanzania, and I remember him talking about the difference between time in America and time in Tanzania or East Africa. And he said it this way, if I went into town and ran into somebody who I had known years ago but hadn't seen in a while, I would be so excited to see them, and I would embrace them, and I would talk to them for a while, and then I would say to them, you must come over. You must come to my house. Come over, and we'll share a meal together. And here's what I would know, he said. I would know that at some point in the next couple of days or maybe the next week, he would come over. He would probably bring his family. I don't know when he's going to come. He's just going to come. And when he comes, I will stop everything I am doing and I will prepare a meal and I will invite him to spend the night and we will spend hours together. He said, in America, you say, I'll see you at, and you pick a time and an end time and you're done with me. And I think, well, it's not that bad. But the reality is this. If I run into a friend that I haven't seen in a while, I might say, hey, we should get together sometime. What am I going to then do? I'm going to say, email me. And once you've emailed me, then we'll set up a date in the future at a particular time. I will plug it into my Google Calendar, and I will make sure that I have a time slot for you. And that time slot may be a generous hour and a half so that I know I can fit it into the other things I need to get done that day. And there will be a beginning time and an end time so that I can then slot other things into my day. We've professionalized friendship. Now, both have their problems. It's probably really hard to get things done in Tanzania cultural advancement or economic advancement might be more challenged. Here, economic advancement is really easy, but friendship is not. And the choices we make about how we do time and one another might not be God's ways. They might just be patterns we've fallen into because we have other assumptions and values. So, Over the next two months, we're looking at extended family in 1 Corinthians. I want us to do two things. I want us to think and I want us to act. I want us to think about what are our assumptions and tendencies and which ones need to be challenged. Here's my guess. As Christians, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it is unlikely that your worldview is wholly Christian. There are things about all of our worldviews and our approach to life that are our own views or our culture's views and may not be God's wisdom and ways. I want us to think about how the gospel mind, the Christian mind, should think about relationships. And with people, I want us to think, at least during the next few months, what is God calling me to this day? Who is God calling me to this day? Who has God put in my life this day? Who do I need to reach out to? What younger or older or somebody different than me? Who do I need to go deeper with? Who is God putting in my life and on my heart during this season? And I want us to act. I want us to act. For some of you, that might be um, joining a small group for the first time this fall. It might mean that next week you're going to actually move seats. It might mean that you're going to stay after for coffee. It might mean that you're going to reach across the aisle and say, hey, do you want to get lunch this week? And then setting a time on your Google Calendar to do that. 
And you can do this not just in this church, but on your street, in your school, in your workplace. Think about relationships and act on them. And I want us to cultivate a vision of a relational world. What would it look like if at Christ Church Vienna, new people didn't feel like it took a long time to enter in because people who had been here a long time saw them and welcomed them in? What would it look like if people who are younger in our church saw the need for people older in our church and people who are retired went out of their way to speak to students in high school? What would it look like in our church if we didn't assume that a single woman was looking to be set up on a date? And instead of trying to set her up, we invited her into our lives and our families. What would it look like as men to see every woman in this church as our family, younger women as our daughters, peers as our sisters, older women as our aunts, and we cared for them and loved them and protected them like they were our extended family? And what if, what if we could push ourselves a little bit? If the goal was not just my family of four and my close circle of friends, and then I'm done with relationships because I'm kind of full. What if it was an extended family of 40 or 100 or an entire church that we were all looking to cultivate? What if we started making relationships a priority? I think we'd realize just how much we've been missing out for the years in the past. And my guess is while we'd have to make sacrifices to make relationships a priority, we would not regret it. I think that if we started making relationships a priority, we as a church would find that people outside of this church want to be a part of it like they did in the first couple chapters of Acts. And, And I think we'd finally start to experience God and what it's like to live life as it was meant to be lived. Look, I'm not sure how we get there. I'm not fully sure how to diagnose us, but here's the aim. Think and act with the wisdom of God and begin to cultivate relationships, a less individualistic and more of a relational extended family way of living. Let's pray. God, there are so many things that get in the way of living the Christian life of understanding the wisdom and truth that you have laid out before us in Jesus Christ crucified. We are made for relationships. We are made for relationship with you through Christ and through that for relationship with one another. I pray that we would have wisdom from you and not from our own intuition or culture only and that we would walk in the ways of God, loving one another and experiencing the joys of family. In Jesus' name. Amen.